You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Andrew Child, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Rutledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to rutledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 12, The Three Penny Opera, and with us today is author of that chapter, Lauren T. Mack. Lauren is a Brooklyn-based actor and writer who has appeared on stage in New York at the York Theater, New York Fringe Festival, IRT, the PIT, and on stages throughout the U.S. and France. Lauren's voiceover work ranges from Ford Motors to audio play meditations with Full Metal Workshop. Lauren also produces award-winning indie films such as Cat Planet and recently appeared in Valor, which was an official 2020 selection for Queer XFF. Lauren teaches acting at New York Film Academy and is a proud member of Actors' Equity and a key with Ring of Keys. And you can read more about Lauren at laurentmack.com. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I loved your chapter on Three Penny Opera. Uh, and I'd love to sort of start chatting today for those who maybe haven't gotten their hands on the book yet. What makes the Three Penny Opera a key musical in musical theater history? I mean, so many reasons. I, I was so excited when I got to write about this chapter because for me as like a musical theater student growing up, I always, I, you know, of course you love Oklahoma, you love, um, you know, Brigadoon, you love mm-hmm. these shows, but you also kind of find yourself, and I know there are musical theater students listening to this right now who are like, yeah, but like, where's all the urine towns at? You know, mm-hmm. like, why isn't there more of that? Where is the stuff that we can actually sink our teeth into intellectually? And mm-hmm. You know, and uh, Three Penny Opera really shifted that conversation. Um, it really, you know, if you think about what was popular in the 50s, um, musicals wise, you're looking at King and I, you mm-hmm. know, you're looking at Guys and Dolls. Um, these are fairly formulaic shows, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, not a lot of bucking of social norms, um, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the you know all the legit shows were uptown right all of the legit Uh shows were in were in uh you know times square 42nd street that was where you know a hit show would be and um this show uh had its home at the um theater de lis which is in greenwich village um oh wow yeah um and the two producers were unknowns you know carmen capalbo and stanley chase they crowdfunded the initial run for 10k um for a short-term lease you know all of their friends just put in and um and you know it was anything and this was sort of something that was starting to happen at this time right um Mm -hmm. it's what we now looking back refer to as the off-broadway movement but at the time we you know no one knew that that's what it was right it was just any production or theater company that was kind of deemed too radical or strange for a broadway audience would um find a home in a cafe downtown or a church basement or a music venue mm. you know they were going wherever they could to make their work happen um so you know and this 
this was also an incredibly accessible show. Um, the best seats in the house were $3 and 60 cents. Wow. You know, um, you know, and they had to do that because to convince a Broadway audience or a Broadway critic to come all the way downtown, which now we laugh about because, you know, half of us live in Brooklyn, but like mm -hmm. to come all the way down there was a huge deal, especially because that was like sort of the hot house um, where uh, the countercultural movement was happening in the 50s, right? You had beatniks down there. Um, Jackson Pollock was doing his work down there. Jack Kerouac, mm. Merce Cunningham. Um, you know, this was this was where the new stuff was happening. So Three Penny found its home there um, because it was kind of it, it got a lot of great response from producers initially, but everything kind of petered out. Um, and it's still a very unique musical. Um, there's dissonance in the chords you know it's not always like a like oh i'm gonna relax and put on three penny opera oh, like god no oh it god attacks no you, yeah. man it yeah <laughs> you know and that's the that's the heart of the piece right is it's demanding you pay attention um you know and we hear you can hear and see this influence in um later musicals like cabaret like company mm. like pippin you know um it was really sort of the face of this tr of this you know trend that it started for musicals to buck a formulaic ending to acknowledge the audience and kind of slyly wink mm. um you know and to address like really heavy and salacious topics like you know prostitution the hero's a murderer systemic mm -hmm. inequity you know i mean right. it these were not things you did at that time in a musical. Um, Do you, you think know. that the unique location of this show and sort of positing Bertolt Brecht among those names that you just listed who were mm -hmm. kind of having their own movement downtown, did that did that increase this show's success? Did that make this show something that it wouldn't have been had it opened in a more mainstream venue? Yeah, interesting you say that. I think, yes, I think that the success came from, you know, and this was something Bertolt Brecht would be very proud of, that it was the people, you know, it wasn't the mm -hmm. elites that made this popular, you know. Okay, yeah. Um, but, you know, funnily enough, at this time, the the um, the production in the United States, which was not the first production of Three Penny, um, mm -hmm. the first one was in Berlin um, in the 20s, um, and uh, the... Um, he was actually in East Germany at this time. Um, okay. He wasn't really involved with the American production. Um, he mm. gave his sign off for the translation, but the people who were stateside were um, Lottie Lenya and Kurt Weil. Um, Kurt Weil was the composer. Lottie Lenya had famously played uh, Pirate Jenny and was his wife and after he passed kind of the guardian of his estate and his work. Mm. Um, so those were those were the folks, you know, so they were, you know, um, European refugees themselves. Um, so the at first, the audiences that were coming in were uh, European refugees from World War Two, sort of nostalgic for, you know, the sound of the time before the war, because this, mm. you know, premiered in 1929 okay. in Berlin. Um, you know, but then the countercultural moment happened. And I really think that you can't leave politics out of this show because no, right. the reception in Berlin, right? Um, the reception in Berlin, um, you know, was, uh, you know, pretty clearly delineated along people along the lines of ideology, whether you were more capitalist um, and on the side of the bourgeoisie, or if you were more um, a socialist, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have this show happen again in the 50s in the United States and what's happening right then the McCarthy hearings, right? Mm. So there is yet again, a uh, division between, you know, the younger generation, um, uh -huh. you know, the beatniks, the counterculturals, the revolutionaries, um, right. you know, who were deeply attracted to this work. And it did help that at this time, uh, you know, uh, both Kurt Weil and Bertolt Brecht were subpoenaed by the, you know, uh, House mm. of uh, uh, American Activities Committee um, to uh, speak. Um, and that added to their notoriety, I think. A oh, little wow. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. So do yeah. you think that the American market sort of had a place for this show in the 50s, you feel like, because of what was going on in the world? See, I, I think it didn't. I think it okay. did it by the skin of its teeth. Um, wow. It, uh, it really it really wasn't um, popular. 
uh, with, you know, the if it had gotten a space uptown, I don't know that it would have done very well. Um, Interesting. You know, I think it was really that geographic positioning because it did have, um, you know, uh, so Mark Blitzstein, who was the uh, translator um, mm -hmm. uh, of the lyrics and um, uh, a brilliant, you know, um, writer in his own right, um, he uh, had like a couple of, you know, concerts to kind of garner some interest, try things out. And um, Kurt List, who was a Viennese born music critic, so he's from Austria, came mm -hmm. to the United States at some point during the war, right? He called the early production, quote, a piece of anti-capitalist propaganda, which exalts anarchical gangsterism and prostitution over democratic law and order. I mean, but quote. is he wrong? But is he wrong? No, he's absolutely greatly right. Like, it's just not a bad thing, right? Right, um, right. But it was, but it was something where, you know, they had this great concert people were uh there was a lot of enthusiastic response around it um and uh but all of the producers sort of fell off and didn't really follow up mm -hmm. um part of that reason was the sort of anti-communist sentiment in the united states at the time okay but honestly it also was because in 1933 there was a production of three penny that i believe only ran like three weeks it was a terrible, terrible translation. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, and um, and also, you know, if you think about the United States in the '30s, it was quite uh, hostile to um, socialism. Um, and uh, actually, we had a Nazi problem as well. Mm. Um, you know, uh, so so it was it was really unsuccessful. And so a lot of producers were like, "All right, well, between the current political climate." And the evidence we have of an English translation of this, even though it wasn't Mark Blitzstein's work, mm -hmm. um, people really backed off of it. Okay. You know, um, so, so it was, that was why these two sort of nobody producers, right, um, uh, managed to make it happen because they were like, well, this is the shot we've got. Right. So that's what we're going to do. So you've already sort of mentioned a couple of musicals that sort of took direct influence from Three Penny. And I'd say, probably the big ones, the obvious ones that will openly tell you and recognize that they owe a lot to Three Penny Opera and the work of Bertolt Brecht would be Cabaret and uh, You're in Town that you mentioned. Can mm -hmm. we talk a little bit about what are some of these shows, either Cabaret and You're in Town or some of the other ones, like you mentioned Pippin, what are they latching on to in Three Penny? What did Three Penny do so well and do so early on that other shows could then follow suit. Yeah, I mean, I think so Cabaret is a really interesting one, right? Because mm -hmm. it takes place in the time when Three Penny was premiering, right? In the mm -hmm. time and place in which it was premiering. Um, you know, and a fun fact about uh, the 1972 production of Cabaret is that Lottie Lenya was in it. Right, um, right. And to add that like flavor, right? Um, right. Uh, and that uh, realism of it. Um, so, you know, I think there is, and, and what Kurt Weil, the composer, was getting at, he sort of broke ground. So it's called the Three Penny Opera, right? And it's based on a 17th century opera. Um, it's based on a 17th century opera. Um, called the beggar's opera right mm -hmm. and that is a very traditionally what you would think of when you think of opera classical music um that type of thing he was making this opera that um used atonality that was um that was borrowing um from jazz which he heard in the seedier nightclubs of berlin mm -hmm. which is where cabaret is set okay. right so there's it's almost like two you know it's like the spider-man meme they're all pointing at each they're other all, right <laughs> you know um it's it's very much that i mean like there was so much um and you see it in these um even in the structure of cabaret right um mm -hmm. the musical numbers are not all necessarily uh you know happening in a okay you know in the traditional musical theater sense of like i can't speak it so i have to sing it right in a dramatic scene some of these numbers are actual just numbers in the nightclub right mm. um and there is direct address to the audience and i think that's something that cabaret revival did so incredibly well was the mc talking directly to the audience and mm -hmm. that is something that is like 
the Brechtian thing, but we'll we'll get to alienation. Mm, <laughs> but I which guess I want, yeah. we should also talk about um, there, at least for a time, there was a bootleg on YouTube of uh, Alan Cumming doing the Three Penny Opera, who then yes. would play the MC in the revival. So it's again, it's yes. one of those like having La Telenia in the original yeah. cast, you know, it's you're doing like a little motion with your hands when you talk about cabaret <laughs> yeah. and three penny that the listeners won't be able to know about, but it's like, it's just this little cocoon and they're just feeding into each other. Uh, but you, you right off the bat, you talked about urine town. So I would love to know yeah. sort of what are you seeing in urine town front that you think is a direct lineage to three penny. Well, if you look at like the um, the orchestrations of Three Penny, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of doubling of like reeds and um, mm. and things like that. It's a smaller band um, and the band is in view. Um, you know, uh, there's also you can also like, you know, just go back and listen to like the opening of Urine Town and then listen to the overture for Three Penny <laughs> and like tell me it's not. You know, yeah. tell me yep. it's not. But there is also a lot of direct address in the audience um, to the audience there too, right? Um, and I think this is this is the point at which we should we should bring up the V effect, right? The, yeah. uh, the alienation. So talk to um, us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is like um, you know uh, this is like what I think you know one of the elements of Breck's work that's like best represented in Three Penny. Um, uh, it's this idea that. Um, so it's often mistranslated into the alienation effect, um, mm -hmm. but it's really it's really like the idea that a play should not cause the spectator to identify emotionally with the characters mm -hmm. um, or the action, but that they should actually recognize that this is not real. So it's like sort of the opposite of suspending one's disbelief, right? It's like put it. It's like um, dropping the disbelief. Mm. Um, and um, and the idea is uh, that it would provoke some self-reflection um, and a critical view of what's going on on stage and therefore in the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Aristotle, that good old buddy, um, uh, <laughs> argued, you know, that catharsis sort of forced the audience to practice empathy. You know, if you really identify with the character, then you uh, will have experience sort of walked a mile in their shoes and you will have learned something from it and it will improve society overall right mm -hmm. what brecht is saying is the opposite is that when you get swept up in the story you start getting attached to that particular character mm -hmm. and you don't actually think about the larger pieces at work so the ways that he did this was um you know reminding the spectator that the theater isn't real. So exposing pieces of the set, you know, um, holding up placards before every scene as if it's a silent movie to remind mm. you that, you know, this isn't real. Um, direct address to the audience speaking right out. Um, even as I, we were talking about the dissonant music, even that it doesn't let you sit back and wash over you. You mm -hmm. have to kind of sit up on your seat. And the idea, and you also don't get a happy ending, right? Or you mm. get a happy ending that's sort of unsatisfactory and you don't believe it because mm. he wanted the audiences to leave unsatisfied and recognize social injustice and exploitation and be moved to go out from the theater and do something about it because they were frustrated they didn't get the satisfaction in the theater mm. right so you know uh if you think about going back to urine town like thinking about the end of urine town he yell uh the um uh, officer lockstock yells uh hail malthus uh -huh. um, right. And so, you know, you've got a Broadway audience going like, who the heck is Malthus? Uh -huh. Right. Everybody's looking it up after the show. And then everybody starts thinking about, oh, uh, yeah, like the usage of resources. Like, what is that? Right. Um, and, and I think Urinetown is actually a really great example of this. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, mute, mute this right now. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, but you have, um, you know, the characters kind of do get what they want and it's not right. good for the world um you know this idea that like oh well if everybody has the water then everybody actually dies that's actually a bad mm -hmm. thing right um it, it and it makes us as an audience feel uncomfortable and go oh where have i done that in my life right mm. um but he also you know brecht also did this in three penny this alienation with um mckeith like in the uh 54 production in the united states uh 
the McKeith um, was uh, directed to be more effeminate um, so that this idea of a murderer, um, uh, this like hyper-masculine um, ideal, and then this this characterization that is sort seems to be bucking up against that, right? Um, mm -hmm. Lada Lenya at playing pirate Jenny when she originated the role in 1929, now in 1954, she's still playing it. And the idea of like the most desired prostitute is one who is much older, right? Mm. The idea that you know, so like, so sort of forcing people to start to address like, oh, why do I think that's dissonant? Okay. Why, why do I think, why do I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, a man who uh, gives um, some effeminate characteristics can't murder? What is that? Why do I think uh, violence is masculine? Right? Mm. Um, so, so the idea is that you are getting at truth and not necessarily reality. And I think that's a very important thing to highlight, especially in the culture in which we live right now. Um, you know, like to understand that reality is not the same thing as truth, right? As an actor, the reality is, is that you're on a stage, you have to mm -hmm. cheat out, right? Mm -hmm. You have to project your voice. Can you still give a performance that feels true and resonates with people? Absolutely, right? And so you're hitting so much on these big ideas that are so integral to Brecht's philosophy, to really Brecht's major contributions to the theater that we still see popping up in so many different ways, you know, not to harken back to just this one production, but the Alan Cumming production of Three Penny, they yeah. used like neon signs that would lower down and say, we're in Max Den now, or, you know, or yeah. we're in uh, Peachum's parlor, that there is no set piece. They're just telling you, this is where this scene takes place. We see so many ideas like that still going on in theater. Would you recommend for listeners, are there other works of Bertolt Brecht that you feel like highlight this philosophy just as well as Three Penny or better than Three Penny? Or would you say that Three Penny is a really good starting place? to start I, grappling with this idea? That's a that's a great question. Well, firstly, you know, something I, I, I'm, I'm sorry I haven't brought up sooner is that Brecht didn't do this alone. Mm. Um, this was not Brecht's alone. And, um, and I want to do a little justice here to Elizabeth Hauptmann, um, who uh, was his, uh, um, he dated all of his collaborators. Um, Elizabeth Hauptmann uh, was his girlfriend and uh, initially brought him the material for Three Penny Opera, wrote the majority of it, um, you know, borrowed, uh, you know, other um, language from uh, a, a criminal poet um, named mm -hmm. Francois Villon, um, you know, uh, and she, she was also the one who gave him Das Kapital and introduced him to Marxism. Wow. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so, and she was um, not really, she was listed as a co-writer, but okay. not really given a whole lot of credit for the work. And she mm. wrote the book for Happy End, which is um, another uh, Brecht Vile collab um, that uh, I highly recommend checking out. She wrote the book for that, but it um, and and uh, was nominated for uh, a Tony for it, but oh, wow. uh, six years after her death. So she never she never really in her lifetime got to see. Um, you know her work shine but happy end is a great one um hmm. i would say also uh um caucasian chalk circle and mother courage um you know are also and it's interesting because you know i wouldn't call those musicals those last two necessarily musicals i would call mm -hmm. them plays with music mm -hmm. um but i still i still think that there is a very interesting sensibility there um that uh if if people want to try to understand this, um, you know, uh, effect, this V effect, this, uh, um, you know, alienation effect. Uh, I think those are great places to look, but I also think we see it in our culture. Now, meme mm. culture is a really good example of, uh, oh. of that alienation effect. Great. Um, <laughs> say more, say more. Oh boy. 
where do I start? Okay. So, you know, I think there is, um, you know, sort of a lack of straightforwardness to the humor of meme culture. And sometimes it's, it's so, um, Dadaist and random mm -hmm. that it almost comes back around to being in earnest, you know? Um, but, uh, the memes, I do feel, uh, you know, so many people I've spoken to have, um, gotten a better understanding about, uh, say, um, a piece of music or um, a, uh, you know, piece of political theory or anything from a joke being made in a meme, um, mm. because it doesn't give you all of the information, right? Uh -huh. It's just the image, and then you have to go into it. But the meme itself, right, is not an original piece, right? It's almost uh -huh. always using um, imagery that was created by somebody else or is a stock photo or, you know, a screen cap from a movie. Right. So again, we're coming back to that Spider-Man pointing all the Spider-Man's pointing at each other. Right. Okay. Where does the, where does the idea start? And is the idea living in the meme itself or is it, you know, uh, something that originated with one person a long time ago? Mm. Right. And I don't know if there is necessarily a new idea, right. Is there anything like that? But I, okay. you know, I think the, you know, there's, there's a lot in Three Penny that speaks to our culture right now. I mean, the, uh, the alienation that one feels um, in, <laughs> in, uh, you know, the current pandemic that we live in, right? Um, the alienation of being separated from everybody and yet being more connected as a culture than we ever have been. Mm. You know, we have the, you know, we have somehow created this, you know, situation where we have like 17 apps to communicate with each other but we feel more alone than ever before so if you had to address three penny tomorrow if you had to direct it if you were casting it if you were producing it what would be the thoughts in the forefront of your mind like what are you trying mm -hmm. to bring the audience's attention to within the production if you were presenting it tomorrow or next week well, number one, I would want to do the entire thing on TikTok. Oh, cool. Um, okay. I think that, uh, you know, something the the accessibility of three penny is mm -hmm. what I think makes it so compelling. But I think uh, it it's a long runtime. It's like two and a half hours, you know, right, like right. I think that our, uh, you know, I, I would be interested to see what it would be like to play with attention spans um, and make people uncomfortable in the context of TikTok, which feels like a very comfortable thing to do, right? It's feeding, we just can constantly scroll to the point where the TikTok algorithm actually every once in a while will be like, hey, you're scrolling too you're, fast. Right. So, <laughs> right. right. Um, but I also would focus on the war song. Um, mm. uh, the, which is a great the, song incredible song i mean talk about a stein swinger you know like it's mm -hmm. a real banger um and uh and i think that um you know that was sort of the turning point for audiences in um, 1929 um the audiences in berlin didn't really get it until they got to the war song which features a career criminal and the chief of police reminiscing on their happy days in the army um and then they were like oh we get what's go going on here yes they're all the same thing right the call mm. is coming from inside the house a spider-man <laughs> you know, pointing at each other there we go spider-man's pointing at each other right like this is all systemic you know and i think that when we look at the militarization of our modern police right now i think the war song is um, you know about as uh, much of a uh, you know defund the police, abolish the police anthem as anything else, right? Mm. Because it's talking about how really uh, the laws only apply if you don't have friends. Which is then just so that frustrating system. that you know someone wrote this back in the twenties, or multiple mm -hmm. people wrote this and could recognize this back in the twenties, and yet we're still having this conversation. We're still need needing to have people realize this and make this click, which is a little bit crazy. It is a little bit crazy, but you know, also I think that, you know, history is not a line, it's a spiral, right? Mm. We like circle in on it a little bit closer every time. Um, I think that, uh, you know, when you look at the crisis, you know, cause lots of people love to like compare, you know, Weimar era Berlin 
Mm. to, you know, what's happening in our country now, especially right. during the Trump years, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's a really overly simplistic way to right. view things. But I will say there is um, a large gap between rich and poor right now. Um, we have uh, massive systemic inequality, but we also have um, the leisure time and the resources to be reading up on Marxist theory and materialist feminist theory and like all of these things, you know, I think that there is um, a similarity in the way that ideas are um, being able to be forged right now. Um, mm -hmm. And there's an excitement. Um, and, it, you know, I think that that is, uh, I think that's what makes Three Penny so evergreen is because it really is like a, um, a cry against, you know, uh, I, I like to refer to Bertolt Brecht as sort of a Kanye figure because he really <laughs> only wrote things as a contrarian response to someone else. He had to okay. have an enemy. Okay. He had to have beef in order to write something, you know, and this is like his, uh, you know, this was his first major hit, you know, um, and at the time, you know, we talk about Brecht so much right now, but uh, but at the time, Brecht was incredibly jealous of Vile because his music was the one that was playing in all of the clubs. There was even a club that only played three penny opera music. Wow. Um, yeah, like and uh, and Brecht was mad that he couldn't find a way to make his ideas as catchy as the music is, which is mm. why I feel like this piece lends itself well to TikToks because TikToks and memes and internet culture in general has made um, the um, has made ideas catchy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It has and made ideas Let's viral. talk about catchy. Let's talk about Bobby Darin covering... Mac no. the knife, you know, yes. which is crazy to take this song that, as you've mentioned, like we got discord, we got dissonance. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. And we've got, you know, a uh, top 50 oh, billboard uh, hit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy <laughs> that that song can become popular in yeah. the right hands because it is. It's so catchy. This music is dangerous. Yes, it's very dangerous. And here's the thing about Bobby Darren which I love. So Bobby Darren was the one who took home the 1959 Grammy um, for record oh, wow. of the year. But Louis Armstrong was the first one to cover it. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So and Louis Armstrong was, you know, giving it a lot of the um, subtext of, you know, uh, being on the other side of oppression in this country, mm. right? Um, as much as he could at the time, right? Um, but, uh, you know, uh, he did, you know, um, he did like, Bobby Darren did uh, like give um, Louis Armstrong like a little up in the song itself, like added sort of contemporary ad libs and mm -hmm. like um and like armstrong had this sort of playful tribute to la delenia in the lyrics right mm. um uh which um then bobby darren copied and then ella fitzgerald's live recording mm -hmm. won a grammy a year later um you know uh and she uh at the time like in the introduction she says something like oh god i hope i remember all of the lyrics <laughs> and she forgets them <laughs> And she does a live improvisation that includes lyrics, oh, Bobby Darren and Louis Armstrong, they made a record, oh, but they did. And now Ella, Ella and her fellows were making a wreck, what a wreck of Mac the Knife. <laughs> oh. 
So again, oh my we got the Spider-Man all pointing at each other. There we you know? go. And listeners, if you want to talk more about uh, these pop artists covering musical theater songs, definitely I'm going to give a little plug, give a listen to the My Fair Lady episode with Peter Felicia. He goes in depth. All these names that we're mentioning now, like they were all covering My Fair Lady. They were all covering Hello, Dolly. So it is we're keeping Three Penny like right in line with these big mainstream hits that were playing uptown concurrently so i'd love to ask lauren in your opinion because i will i'll get a little bit personal here and i'll say that i found three penny opera um because as like a little kid i got my hand somewhere on an album that is b arthur doing just whatever the heck she wanted to do she's like you know at death's door so old sitting in a chair and she's just (laughs) singing whatever she wants to sing and for whatever reason this old lady was like i want to do pirate jenny i want to sing pirate jenny in my like Mm -hmm. farewell concert which Mm -hmm. is crazy which is weird and she sings it and she gives minimal context leading up to it and then she sings this very scary song um like you already sort of summarized for us about, you know, the most desirable prostitute kind of having a dark side to her. Um, And it's very scary. And out of context, it's, it's crazy that this woman sang that. So that sort of led me to three penny opera. So I'd love to ask for someone who wanted more traditional of an approach, maybe wanted a little more context than finding that song. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend a listener who doesn't know Three Penny Opera but is interested? Should they be reading it? Is there a recording that you'd recommend? There's more than one movie. How would what would you say is the best in to Three Penny Opera? Ooh, honestly, that's a really good question. Um, I think, like any piece mm-hmm. but especially this piece the the way in is to do it is to go oh, wow. try and try and learn pirate jenny mm. um and and sing her words and 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 feel that because you know we talk so much about this alienation effect and i think sometimes people mistake that for not having a deep connection to the piece and to the character mm. and um you know pirate that that song um that pirate jenny sings pirate jenny mm-hmm. is really about sexual violence it's about mm. her taking revenge on all of the people who have hurt her right mm. to do the work to me is to start to approach it um I would also say like haunting covers are, you know, Nina Simone's um, Mm. uh, and Bob Dylan actually wrote uh, like uh, he said uh, he was laid um, quote flat on his back um, by the translation of the ship, the black freighter and composed in that style and then wrote when the ship comes in. Um, Oh, wow. So I honestly, I think the way to get into this piece is to find your personal emotional hook into it Mm. um because i think that you know if you try and approach it like a uh you know a traditional musical where you might like go like listen to the obc and Mm -hmm. you know um let you know try and imagine what the production might be like i think without the visual aspect without the felt experience of it it can sometimes feel inaccessible and you're like sort of like why is mm. this what you know why is this so you know all over the place and atonal and this is making me mad but it's it's about the feeling right so mm-hmm. to me it's it's the it's experiencing the piece to me but also i would recommend um if you can get your hands on a recording of uh the berliner ensembles productions okay. um especially uh the one they did a few years ago um was just so arresting um and stark um uh but i i honestly would say the best way is to is to either do it or get in the theater and experience it live like if you can and so is this a show that did you meet this show in that way were you able to see it live or you were you able to work on it uh, yeah, I, um, I, I college production, you know, was, oh, cool. was the hook in and I was just doing, you know, ensemble, but I couldn't, 
stop, um, you know, like the ballad of dependency, I would just sit backstage every night and just be so enraptured by this like, dark, really toxic relationship and like, how, you know, um, how like sexy and alive it was at the same time, you know, but it was it was the presence, honestly, and it was having to pick apart this work and go, okay, how do we, how do we still make this feel relevant? Um, you know, and, and turns out, you know, the more you approach the work, the more you do the work, the more you're like, oh, wow, this all is happening right now. There is nothing I need to do to make it relevant, you know? Um, I'll say this is a very different show, I think, than some of the other episodes when I'm talking to people, one of the things that comes up is, you know, uh, the fantastic springs to mind. And it's yes. like, this is a hard show to do wrong. Like you can go see this show in like an amateur production with no budget in the basement of the church. And you're going to have the best night you've ever had at the theater. It is hard to screw up the fantastics. Yeah. I would not say that about the three penny opera. I would say that there's a lot of delicacy in the mix here. Um, it, while we're talking about how much is relevant, how much we can see in it that still resonates today. It is so easy to like place a concept on top of this and really drive any nuance into the ground and just make this sort of like heavy handed and preachy. So I'd love to know, like dramaturgically coming out a different sort of listener now who maybe is listening mm -hmm. and knows Three Penny inside out and is preparing to mount a production at their college in the basement of a church on broadway whatever um yeah. what would you say dramaturgically like what would you say to that person what should they be thinking about what should they be engaging with um for me i think i see a lot of concept three penny productions in mm -hmm. the in the way that you know it's like okay we're gonna do hamlet but on the moon you know yes, like i've seen some of those as well <laughs> yes yes and i think that like that sort of is like a way of trying to like skate around the um to, to make it more palatable to an audience and be like oh well, i don't want to alienate people we need those subscribers which <laughs> capitalism all right like right let's talk about it but i think um i want to high i, I want to just read this quote because I feel like it's it mm. says everything we need to say. Oh, great. Um, Mark Blitstein um, saw an original production in Berlin when he was a student. Um, so decades before he translated it and made it into the you know Broadway hit we know today, mm -hmm. as a kid, he saw it and he described um, Brecht's style as, quote, daringly anti-Aristotelian. It rejects atmospheric or emotional persuasion, audience involvement, audience catharsis. It demands floodlit exploration, unsentimental demonstration, audience estrange estrangement, final audience realization. Set forth as a concept, this may seem forbiddingly cold, but so intense is the Brechtian energy, so varied the ingenuity, so deep the insight and compassion, and so unerring the sense of human comedy that in actual reading, and certainly in a good performance, the play takes on a quality of an intellectual circus. Wow. That, I know, I know. <laughs> so like, I would say focus, focus on um you know i think we as musical students of musical theater as lovers of musical theater mm -hmm. we're, we unironically love things because they are sentimental right mm. but here you have to be vicious you have to be like mac the knife you have mm. to be able to say i don't really care if you don't get it because mm. that's the magic of three penny is saying like, I don't care if you get it, but I'm also at the same time addressing you directly and saying, come along, right? Mm. If you're brave enough, come with me, right? But I think that's something that we sort of miss in audience interaction nowadays at all. And I'm not talking about like, you know, the moment in the in the finale where everybody like, you know, take walks into the audience, like, please, God, don't do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think there's like a there's an onion, there's an onion article or something about like, oh, God, they're coming into the audience. Okay. <laughs> beautiful. But um, but, you know, I think there is um, sort of a uh, attitude we have towards the audience now that is sort of like us and them um, mm. in the theater, you know, um, 
I think we have this attitude of like, oh, well, if people can't stay off their phones, they shouldn't come to the theater instead of figuring out how we can integrate phones into the theatrical experience, mm. you know, there's, um, instead there's, of wondering why that's more interesting to them. Right. 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 Yeah. There is this incredible book that I recommend to everyone. So I'm going to recommend it to you and I'm going to recommend it to the listeners as well. And I'm checking the title. It's over here next to me. It's called Theater and Audience by Helen Freshwater. It's like Ooh. it's like a read it in like two or three sittings. It's a very small book. Um, but her whole thing is she'll change the way you go into every theater now because basically she says like if the artistic director or whoever comes out and is saying we want everyone sitting forward we want you engaging with the work um she's basically Ugh, like fuck you fuck you don't yeah. tell me what to do don't tell me what to do and she goes into all these experimental theater pieces that are incorporating like video game mentality and all these different things it totally revolutionized and i would say i was already a person who you know who was introduced to brecht uh, like formally in college was familiar with the vfx like new stuff like this so when i'm in the audience i'm feel like i am already consciously thinking about theater and audience relationship i've read yes. through this book so many times and it totally changed the way that i enter a theater space and think about my relationship to the performers as an audience member just because it hits on everything that you just talked about. It hits on so much yes. that came from that quote. Um, well, and I love that you say this because the form is the function, right? And the thing I mm -hmm. would say to producers of this work is um, if you're doing three penny and the seats are, you know, a hundred dollars a pop and you don't have lower prices for younger people or for you know anybody who can't afford it because let's be honest there are people who are in their like mid 30s and 40s who can't right. afford right you know um like if you're if you're making this work inaccessible and treating it as a treasured classic with which we cannot mess you know then you are missing the point of three penny opera mm. to me the way you put on a production and the way you run your theater company is what shows up in the artistic product on stage. And if you are, you know, doing a thing, you know, if like we're seeing with a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of folks now where, um, you know, uh, we see you, we hear you, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we all know what I'm talking about. Um, but I mean, even, you know, looking at pay transparency, uh, there is a um, really great newsletter uh, by Lauren Halverson um, called Nothing for the Group, which I love and everybody should read. Mm. Um, but in it, uh, she uh, at the bottom always has a posting of current jobs in the American theater. Like, mm -hmm. let's say, you know, your literary manager, your, you know, AD, whatever. And then, um, and the salary. Mm -hmm. And then next to it, what you need to make in that city in order to live what we would call above the poverty line. Okay. Wow. Right. Um, so if you're doing three penny, but you're not paying your interns, I don't mm -hmm. have time for you. <laughs> right. Like, and Brecht and Brecht will, you know, like come haunt you. I promise. Um, Perfect. You know, <laughs> um, but I think that there is there is something about, you know, uh, these these uh, large scale um, productions that just don't recognize also like what one must do for the community you know i think a, a three penny where the cast on their day off goes and volunteers is one that i would like to see mm. you know um and would you say some of those things that you've just thrown out there you know like a three penny that is paying their interns a living wage or they're volunteering on their day off would you say you have any examples in mind of people who today are sort of on like carrying on this legacy of Brecht and Weil and Hoffman um, and are sort of living what they're putting on stage. Do you have any examples of a group or a, an individual, a theater that's doing this now? Oh yeah. Oh, how many people can I name? Um, yes. Um, I mean, like I want to draw attention because we talked a little bit earlier about uh the form follows the function, mm -hmm. right? Um, the way we make theater is what shows up on the stage. Um, 
So I just want to shout out quickly a couple of organizations and people that I think are really shifting the conversation right now. And, um, you know, Broadway for Racial Justice, um, the Broadway Advocacy Coalition, um, Natalie Randall, Shakina Nafak, Brandon Michael Nays, Davon Williams, and Davon Williams in particular for pushing forward the Black Theater Matters Bill, um, which mm. was a bill in equity um, that is, you know, uh, you know, and, and I know that, um, you know, there might be a way, well, this is a lot of, why you gotta make it about race? And it's like, uh -huh. well, let me tell you about the Black, uh, Black Theater Matters Bill. So the Black, that actually has um, materially changed um, some things. It's putting forward, I mean, there's discussions happening right now about like whether or not a 10 out of 12 is a thing we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, is that a use? Is that useful for everybody? Why are technicians not allowed in the rehearsal room until that moment? Right. Mm. Like, um, why is it that there's only one day off a week? You know, I think the pandemic really forced us to address, um, you know, uh, the way why we say the show must go on um, mm -hmm. and whether or not that is um, like, I think we can all agree it's not healthy. But like, does the work benefit or is it detracted by those backstage attitudes, mm. right? Um, you know, uh, and there's there's so many other folks. I mean, the Kilroys um, release a list of plays um, by people of marginalized genders. Um, uh, and uh, you can check out, and all of them are unproduced, by the way. These are all plays that have not yet gotten airtime um, mm. on a stage. Um, uh, the, um, Cornerstone Theater Company, um, doing projects to, you know, go out into the world and, um, create theater in towns where there isn't a theater. They build a proper theater for folks. Um, and then that, you know, just leaving theaters in their wake, um, mm. and teaching and teaching a community how to create a space. Um, you know, I think anybody who is, um, you know, I think we can talk about, you know, oh, New York, New York, New York, and it's like the center of the theatrical world. But I honestly feel like the real revolutionaries out there are the folks in Lexington, Kentucky, the folks in Columbus, Ohio, mm. the folks who are making theater that isn't, um, you know, uh, getting these awards or a ton of the, you know, even funding that we get from the NEA, you know, mm -hmm. I think the more we can, anybody who is advocating for live streaming production so that folks with disabilities or people who are geographically unable to come to the theater can enjoy it, um, you know, and I think we've seen by now that it's not that, uh, you know, because the argument is always like, oh, well, it's going to, then people won't want to come to the theater. They will have already seen the show. But what what I've actually been noticing is that it makes people hungrier to see it in person when they have the ability to. Mm. You know, it's mm -hmm. like now I've gotten a taste and I really want to see it again. I think, mm. you know, I think anybody who is leveraging technology and not, you know, old man screaming at clouding about <laughs> it, you know? Um, uh -huh anything that is going to make the theater something that is for everyone and some mm. a, a place that is a center for community and to have a conversation instead of a dark room where you go in you are talked to or at mm -hmm. for a couple of hours and then you go out and go oh i feel so cultured mm. ah. which these are great these are awesome and it's exactly it's picking up brecht's work who had audience coming into the rehearsal room who was really going to like yes. the fundamental things that were in place and saying, is this important? Do we need this? Or can we throw this out the window? So that's amazing. That's an awesome list. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Is there any work? Is there any person? Is there any theater group that you would say sort of, because I think we can say that mm -hmm. Bertolt Brecht had his own aesthetic had his own philosophy kind of like to the max in all of his art. Would you yeah. say there's anyone who's sort of carrying on that legacy and thinking along those lines? Hmm. I know that's also like a hard question to just sort of throw out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, and and again, I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to go back and, and look. Uh, yeah. But uh, the scenic, 
a designer for um, the current run of company um, okay. is, uh, I just, I, you know, there, obviously I could point to people like, you know, that are much bigger names, but this person, um, and God, I, I really wish uh, I could find, I could find the name. You know what? Go for it. We'll edit this part out. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you. No worries. Oh my gosh. Come on. This is one my... Uh, yes. Okay. All right. So somebody I can speak to mm -hmm. is Bunny Christie, um, who mm. did the costumes and the scenic design for, uh, the current production of company on Broadway. Um, okay. and, uh, also did, uh, the, um, set for a play called people, places, things, okay. which is about somebody who is going through withdrawals. And there is this incredible, moment um and uh they sort of do this trick in um in company as well where uh the main character lies down in bed and then another the the same person in another costume enters a door and then another person runs to the bathroom and throws up so it's all multiple actors but they're all dressed exactly the same and mm. so it's the idea of all of this time passing right mm -hmm. that is actually being condensed into like maybe a one to two minute sequence oh cool um, and this is directly brechtian right so like this idea of um and you know the film montage is the same concept mm -hmm. right um picasso's use of sort of collaging cube uh cubism right um mm. all of that uh is is very similar to what brecht was doing right it wasn't observing Aristotle's unities of time, right. right? It's, it's, um, it's sort of breaking time in order to show you that time is, you know, as we are fond of saying now a construct and a flimsy one at that. Mm. Right. Um, I think that there is, uh, there's, there's something very arresting about that work, um, that, uh, sort of forces the audience to go, wait, what? And at the mm. same time, it feels like a magic trick and you're totally enraptured by how it's happening, even though you can see you can, you know, it's got you're watching it live, it can't all be the same person, right? So you're seeing behind the curtain at the same time as you're seeing this beautiful um, illusion and metaphor for time. So to me, that is about as uh, v effect as you can get mm. it's arresting and you're pulled in and at the same time you're like well what is time that is wild mm. you know what i mean yeah no that sounds very thank you for painting that picture for us thank you that was amazing <laughs> my pleasure and thank you so much for uh talking with me today about the three penny opera this yeah it's my pleasure thank you so very much i really appreciate it thank you for taking the time Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about the Three Penny Opera, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Andrew Child, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.